This is our tenth week in the Old Testament book of Job. Uh, Job was a rich and godly man back in the days of Abraham, and he came under surprise attack from the Satan, that is the adversary angel. And Job survived the first four attacks with amazing faith and did not curse God, so he defeated the devil in that sense, although he didn't even know that the devil was there, perhaps. Well, Satan came back around for another round of bashing on Job, and this time he gave Job a horrible disease, probably black leprosy. Not only was it painful, but its contagious nature meant that no one would be friendly to him or even stand near him any longer. So Job ended up living at the local dump. He was an outcast and he was penniless. Even his wife told Job to curse God and die, but he still held to his faith. And it looked like Satan had failed again, but then Job's friends showed up. Now Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar heard about Job's initial disasters, and they gathered together to come visit Job to comfort him and console him. They definitely meant well. They probably hoped even to help Job financially get back on his feet. So uh, that would, you know, fix a lot of his problems, even though he lost his kids. If he could get his business going again, uh, he could get back in the saddle, so to speak. But when his friends arrived, they discovered that he was now a leper, and all of their plans changed. Financial help wouldn't do Job any good at all. He was doomed, as far as they could tell. They started to wonder how their shared God, the God of Noah, could punish a good man with such disasters. And so they started thinking about this, and they didn't speak to Job for a whole week. They couldn't face the fear that God might do something like this to a good man, because that thought would threaten their own stability and their future. It's unthinkable. A righteous God, like the God who destroyed all the wicked in the flood and saved all the righteous people, would never bring harms to a righteous man, right? So Job must be evil. Inside, at least, he's hidden it well from us. We didn't know about it. But Job must be a secret sinner. As uh, Peterson said, the moment we find ourselves in trouble of any kind, people start showing up, telling us exactly what is wrong with us and what we should do to get better. Sufferers attract fixers the way roadkills attract flies. So here these guys showed up, and they're ready to tell Job now what is wrong with him. Uh, it was two weeks ago in our last message on Job when we studied Job chapter 3. That was Job's curse and lament. So let's review that a little bit. When Job's three friends showed up, maybe Job had a little hope that they could help him somehow. But instead, they sat in silence for a week without speaking to him, as if at a funeral, as if he was dead. And he started to recognize why. He realized that they must have decided he was beyond help, and he must be a wretched sinner. And that's when Job started to crack, and his faith is almost gone. Now, the first half of chapter 3 was Job cursing the day he was born. I showed you how his curses are parallel to the creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created light. Job curses light and calls for darkness instead. God created stars. Job curses stars and wishes they would go dark. God created sea monsters. Job wishes the magicians might call up the Leviathan, the devil, the great sea monster. God makes humans and life. Job curses that his mother should have killed him at birth. God rested, and Job curses rest because he can't get any. So everything God created in Genesis 1 and 2, Job curses, which is uh, 
obviously very close to cursing God. And that's how magic works. The so-called magician would call the opposite of the creation. So God creates, the magician calls for destruction of the creation. But Job doesn't curse God directly. He curses light, darkness, calendars, time, existence, and pretty much everything except for God. It's almost like a game in the sense that Job is skating around the central issue. Job knows very well that God is the one responsible. God destroyed him, but he refuses to say it out loud. Even his wife told him to do it, but he won't do it. But this is the passive-aggressive way of doing it. When you're mad at somebody, curse everything about them, around them, all their friends and all their possessions, and you're not really cursing them? Well, sort of you are. But at any rate, it's cursing God indirectly while pretending not to curse God. Job is clearly stating his dissatisfaction with God. He's not at all happy. Now, it is true that being angry with God is illogical. That is because God is always right, which means that if you're angry at God, and there's a problem between you and God, the problem is yours. But it's also normal. Humans get angry about things, whether they're right or wrong. And since God is ultimately responsible for everything that happens to you, you do get mad. But then you refuse to admit it. I think that God would rather that you share your honest thoughts about being mad than being a hypocrite and pretending you're not angry at him and pretending you can hide it from him with flowery words. If you're angry at God and you pray as if you're still happy with God, he knows you're lying, right? You think you're hiding it from him? <clears throat> of course, Job is upset, he's grieving, and he's hurt, but he's clearly angry as well. In fact, his anger seems to be what's keeping him alive. It's the only reason that he's still going. It's because he's angry at God and wants to know what's going on. But, as I said, we shouldn't think too badly of Job. Most of us would have cracked long earlier than this. We wouldn't have made it this far. And also consider the difference between us and Job at that time. Uh, Barnes, a commentator, he wrote correctly that Job had far less light than we have. He was not sustained by the promises and hopes that the Christian now possesses. In other words, the Bible hasn't been written yet. In fact, nothing has been written yet. Uh, maybe there is language. Maybe there is written language. In fact, we know there's written language because Job says, oh, that someone would write these down in a book for me, which does eventually happen. So there is language, but there's no Bible book. So there's no word of God to find promises and to explain things to it. All that Job and his friends had was oral tradition, things that they heard that were passed down from Adam, Seth, Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, and then their father and grandfather. There had only been a couple generations since Noah. So everything they knew about angels and demons and God and judgment and everything else is just what they heard from their fathers and grandfathers and what they could deduce on their own from the creation. Which means they're living with really limited information. And Job has no scripture to back him up. All he has is his own conscience and his own insights, and that's exactly what his friends have. So it's even difficult to blame them to some degree. They make a lot of mistakes, but we make a lot of mistakes too, and we've got a whole lot more information than they have. So their confusion and frustration are un understandable because the world isn't yet blessed with any inspired words from God. Now, whether Job actually intended to use magic to curse the creation, or if he's just angrily spitting out these rash ideas, is hard to say. Anyway, whether he meant it or not, it was a major error. Speaking rashly is a big error, and in fact, that's what God says at the beginning of Job chapter 38. It says, The Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, 
Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? So ignorant words are not a good thing, whether they're ignorant or evil. See, there's a difference. They're not evil words. Job isn't saying evil things, but he's speaking ignorantly and rashly, and that's usually what happens when you get upset, isn't it? In Ecclesiastes 5.2, we read, Do not be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And you'll see over the next 35 chapters of Job that these guys do not spare many words. And as the Proverbs and other James says, using your tongue all the time is not a good idea. And when you're rattling off all of these speeches, you're bound to say some ignorant words. Unfortunately, Job, in chapter 3, he cursed the day he was born for 15 or 16 verses, and then he lamented that he was ever born in the next 16 to 18 verses. And this is, empowers his three friends to say, Job is not right in the head. We've got to fix Job. So let's do what we can. This empowers them to become his foes very quickly. It's likely that the three friends clearly heard this curse, and to their minds, Job, this guy they thought was a righteous man, is calling for magicians to arouse the great sea serpent, the dragon. How dare this mere mortal curse the creation of God and call on an evil sea serpent? Job's off his rocker. We've got to fix him. So his rash words, if nothing else, gave his friends the excuse to pounce. So that last half of chapter 3 is just Job complaining. It seems to say that his life on earth is so horrible, he would see hell as a step down. At least he could rest there. Now, that's not true. That's definitely ignorant words. Uh, but Job is not talking out of his brain. He's going on emotions here. And that was Job's first speech. Technically, it's not part of the argument. We're going to have a debate. And that was not technically part of the argument because the argument is on an entirely different subject. The next 35 chapters will be this discussion between Job and his philosopher friends. They believe that they have good reason to oppose him. This curse of Job proves that he wasn't the righteous man that he thought or that they believed. So now we can set Job straight. And that means the oldest or the wisest of the friends will start his rebuttal. And Eliphaz, the Temanite, is the leader of the three friends. Now that Job has gone off the reservation. Teman, the place he was from, it was located a few miles from Petra. You've probably seen pictures of Petra. It's in the modern-day country of Jordan. It's that amazing uh, temple or church in a, a rock wall. And lots of tourists go there, in fact. And I think I read that last week there was a fatality. A boulder fell off the hill and killed somebody as he was walking to the temple. But anyway, Petra, that's where uh, Eliphaz was from nearby. It was considered for centuries to be the place of wise men. Even a thousand years later, when Jeremiah was around, he talks about the wise men of Teman. So maybe I'm guessing they had some kind of a university or school of philosophers there, like the Greeks had at Athens later on in history. So Eliphaz was probably an educated man, and that shows in his speeches. He doesn't uh, stumble over his words, and he uses big words, but Eliphaz hopes that he can turn his friend Job back to God and save his soul. So he's on a mission. However, Eliphaz will eventually find frustration as Job refuses to accept his correction. And Eliphaz's anger will boil up, and he gets less and less kind with every speech. They will take turns speaking, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, and each time they get angrier and angrier. But let's start then with Job chapter 4. The plan is today to go through Job chapters 4 and 5. 
So Job chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 6. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, you have instructed weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Well, Eliphaz is fairly kind here at the beginning. He reminds Job of how Job in the past was really good to all kinds of people who were suffering. He helped many. So Eliphaz says, Job, you used to help people when they were in trouble, but now you're in trouble and you're failing? Those rash words you were just saying aren't proof of your integrity. Surely you didn't mean it, Job. So that's how Eliphaz starts. He, uh, I wouldn't call it flattery, but he admits that Job should know better than this. So you might call it a light reproof. Now verses 7 through 11. This is the central argument of the whole debate. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish. By the breath of his anger they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So this is actually the central argument of the whole debate, and this will be repeated in many different ways throughout the rest of the book by all three friends, and El Elihu, the fourth guy who isn't even mentioned yet. And what we call it is the retribution argument. Uh, David Kleins defines it this way. It's the belief that there is an exact correspondence between one's behavior and one's destiny that is known as the doctrine of retribution. In other words, if you behave this way, God will treat you this way. But if you behave that way, God will treat you that way. That's retribution. You get what you deserve is basically what retribution means. Now, if you made it into a logical syllogism, if any of you took logic class, it would be something like this. Tenet one, God is righteous and just. Tenet two, God rewards righteousness and punishes wickedness. Conclusion, based on those two tenets, success and trouble on earth are based on your deeds. Okay, so that's the logical syllogism. If God is righteous, which we believe is true, and if God punishes wicked people and rewards righteous people, which is ultimately true, then if you're in trouble, God is punishing you, and if you're in success, God is rewarding you. Not true. This is where the whole problem comes into. The second tenet is partly correct, and this is what Satan loves to do. Satan does not attack you with lies. God doesn't exist. That's not a good way to tempt a Christian person, because a Christian person already knows that God exists. No, what he will do is get you to doubt that God is a good God, or a righteous God, or that's how he dealt with Eve. Did God really tell you you couldn't eat of that wonderful fruit? God must not be very good if he keeps you from eating that. That's how Satan works. So in this logical uh, syllogism, the first one is true. God is righteous and just. The second one is ultimately true, but not true always on earth. Here's the second tenet. God rewards righteousness and punishes wickedness. Yes, 
and no. The whole point of Psalm 73 is that the psalmist is angry that God allows the, righteous, the wicked to prosper on earth while we're all dirt poor and starving. You see, if you look out in the world, I'm guessing that a lot of those billionaires are wicked people. Now, maybe some of those billionaires are righteous people, maybe a few of them, but in general, your success or failure in the world's eyes has nothing to do with your righteousness or wickedness. In fact, you might want to look at it a different way. If God was to continually reward you and never punish you, you would be a spoiled brat. And that's what we often find with rich people is that they're often spoiled brat. So the problem with their idea, the retribution argument, is that they take one true idea and one partially true idea and end up with a false idea. That if you are suffering, God hates you. And if you are prospering, God loves you. So that's wrong. That is not true. Okay? So what do these men in Abraham's era know about God's deeds? Okay, here's what they know. Adam and Eve sinned, and God threw them out of the Garden of Eden. That's retribution, right? Cain murdered Abel, and he was cursed and by God and sent into exile. That's retribution. The world got evil, and God exterminated them in a flood. But he saved all the righteous people. Okay? That's something they know, and that's retribution. Men refused God's orders to spread over the earth. They built a giant city and tried to build a tower into heaven. So God cursed them and scattered them by ruining their languages. That is retribution. What I'm saying is that everything these wise guys knew was based on observationally. That's what we call induction. When you induce things, that means you count all the examples and you say, okay, if this has happened 10 times in a row, it's going to happen again. However, think about this. If you're flipping a coin, you've got a 50-50 chance of it being heads or tails, right? What if you flip a coin and it's head 10 times in a row? It's very unlikely. That would only happen one in a million times. But if it happens, does it prove that the next time you flip the coin, it will be head? No, it does not. Inductive reasoning is what it's called, is looking at examples. And these men, by their inductive reasoning, have, have incorrectly deduced <laughs> or decided that because God always has punished wicked people in the past, and because he has always rewarded righteous people in the past, he will continue that forever. Therefore, righteous people will never suffer, and wicked people will always die. And that is not true. They have inductively reasoned. They have not deductively reasoned. In other words, they do not understand God's will. They understand his character. But God's character differs from his will in some sense, that he allows evil, he allows the Satan to go out and do wickedness to meet God's ends. They don't know about that. They don't know about the story about Satan in heaven. So they don't understand. And this is the problem. When you build your theology entirely on inductive reasoning, you might go wrong. Because you may not know God's will. You may induce his character, but not deduce his will. Okay, so in science or logic, if you count the number of times X happens, and you decide then that X must always happen, but what if one day Y happens instead of X? Your whole theology collapses. That's why they fail. His friends fail because their theology is based on X, when in this case it is Y. But rather than admit that there might be a Y, they insist that X must be true. Therefore, Job must be a wicked sinner. What we're supposed to do, if, if you're a true scientist, you're supposed to recognize that if Y happens, the X theory is wrong. The X theory might be 
generally true. And that's what we see in the Psalms and the Proverbs. It is generally true that God blesses the righteous and harms the wicked, but it is not always true. Therefore, you have to modify the doctrine of retribution to say that is the ultimate goal of God, and yet it is not the immediate goal of God necessarily. There, there's an exception to the rule. That's what the whole book of Job is about, the exception to the rule. So Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they have seen in the past that God crushes the wicked and rewards the righteous. They have never seen, they claim, God crushing the righteous. So they can't believe it's possible. They have relied on their own observations, their inductive reasoning to decide God's will. And that means they've got God in a box. And once he's in a box, he can never get out of the box. Or you can't admit that he gets out of the box. Well, this is how God works, and God never works that way, they know. But they're wrong. He realized that you may know things that are wrong. I, I realize it's hard to believe. With all your great wisdom, how could I ever be wrong? And uh, I, I'm victim to that sometimes. But unfortunately for me, God often works outside the box, and my theory gets blown apart, and then I have to start over and say, okay, I guess God doesn't do things the way I would do things. Wow, what a surprise. Okay, well... This is exactly the sort of thing that Jesus ran into when he came to uh, earth, into Judea. The Jews and the Pharisees had gotten accustomed to the silence of God. There were no more prophets. For 400 years, they hadn't heard a peep out of God. So all they had is their own religious rites and their own traditions to keep them right before God. So when God the Son shows up on earth and he declares himself a prophet and a king, the Jews can't believe it because they've got God in a box. Law is God. Tradition is God. God sends no more prophets, so this guy cannot be a prophet, so we need to kill him and shut him up. It's exactly the same thing. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar are getting ready to kill Job because he doesn't let God fit in their box. The Jews and the Pharisees are ready to kill Jesus because he doesn't fit in their box. You have to really be careful. This is where churches become cults, uh, like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, various other cults. They are cults because they have fixed on some false doctrine, some belief they have in God, and allowed their whole theology to be twisted by it. And unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has gone that way to a great degree also. But we can't have God in a box. It just usually doesn't work. So let's go on now in Job 4, verses 14 to 21, as Eliphaz continues his speech. Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it in disquieting thoughts, in visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me and trembling. It made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. Then there was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning until evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence vanish? They die even without wisdom. So here we learn more about Eliphaz and how he became so fixed in his philosophy. Along with his inductive belief in the retribution principle, 
Eliphaz believes that all creation is naturally impure before God. Everything is impure before God. Angels are impure. Matter is impure. Humans are impure. Everything is impure. And I don't know if you've watched uh, or if you were here for my earlier sermons, I told you that this text was my very first sermon text, and quite improperly so. As I told you before, Eliphaz is not right very often, and so we have to discuss whether he is correct here, and I'm pretty certain that he is not. You see, Eliphaz tells Job and his friends nearby this true story. He was having nightmares in the night, and he woke up trembling and afraid. And when he woke up, he said a spirit passed before his face, and then it stopped right in front of him. But it was undiscernible. It was very vague. He couldn't make it out, even though he tried. Kind of like a ghost. Eliphaz saw a ghost, and his hair stood up. It's a common fear response. And this form stood before him, and then he heard a voice from the spirit. And the voice spoke several sentences to Eliphaz about God and his creation. Now, to me, this sounds a lot like a demonic visitation and not a vision from God or any angel. There are lots of angelic visions in the Bible. Whenever an angel appears, he appears and he's obvious and everyone knows he's an angel and they're afraid and they bow and try to worship him. Well, Eliphaz doesn't try to bow. He can't see clearly what it is. And all he, he says is he can barely make out that there's something there talking to him. No other place in the Bible do we hear about angels being like that. So Eliphaz can't get a fix on this ghost. Also, I never recall in the Bible where a god or an angel comes to some human and talks philosophy. What other angelic vision do you ever get philosophy out? Daniel, he had lots of visions from angels. Gabriel and Michael and all kinds of angels are visiting Daniel. And what do they tell him? They tell him the future. They tell him exact prophecies. They tell him almost dates. They tell him exactly what's going to happen. Whenever angels appear, they tell Abram, you're going to have a baby. They tell, uh, they tell people exactly what they want them to hear, and it's usually important current information or important prophecy. It's never philosophy. God is like this, says the angel. Let me explain God to you. Does that ever happen? No, because we don't need explanations of God from angels. So I just have to believe that this is a demon that has awoken Eliphaz, and why? The interesting question to me is when did Eliphaz have this vision? He doesn't tell us. But I have absolutely no trouble believing that this happened on the way to visit Job. Because wouldn't it make sense that if Satan knows, and of course he does, he knows pretty much everything that goes on on the earth, he's got spies everywhere, he finds out that Job's three friends are coming, and he's already failed to get Job to curse God and die, even the wife failed. So I'm going to go talk to the friends and make sure the friends are ready to help Job when they arrive. So I suspect, this is just a, a speculation, I suspect that on their way down to visit Job, Eliphaz had this dream, and one of Satan's minions, or Satan himself, uh, talked to Eliphaz and gave him some slightly wrong information, because this information is slightly wrong. Let's talk about what does the spirit tell Eliphaz? First of all, he's right in the first couple sentences, which is usually the way the devil works. He usually gives you a couple of true sentences. You remember when he tempted Jesus? He quoted scripture. And then he starts to twist it a little bit. Okay, well, here's what he says at first. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? No. Easy one, okay? Can a man be more pure than his maker? No. Okay, two truths, truisms, you could call them. 
They're rhetorical questions. They're true and they're obvious. Of course, no human can be more righteous than God or more pure than his maker. But then the Spirit starts adding unknowns. Okay? Let's read these unknowns again. If he puts, that's God, if God puts no trust in his servants, he charges his angels with errors, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay? Okay, so what angels in history that we know of have ever been charged with errors? The devil and his demons, right? Any angels that sinned got thrown out of heaven. So it is not true that God puts no trust in any of his angels because he didn't charge them all with error. He only charged the devil and his demons with error. And in fact, error is what you might call a euphemism. Yeah, we made a little mistake and God got all upset about it. They didn't make a little mistake. They tried to overthrow God. They tried to take over heaven. Okay, so they made a few mistakes and God threw them to, to earth. And this is another reason to believe that this is a demon speaking because uh, he's convinced himself in his own mind that he made a little mistake and now God hates him. Well, he's right. God hates him, but it's not because he made a little mistake. It's because he rebelled. So what this demon then does is says, see, God doesn't even trust angels. So of course he's not going to trust people. In fact, the whole creation, God doesn't trust any of it because it's all evil. You're all going to die anyway. What kind of message is that? I mean, there is a couple places in the Bible like Ecclesiastes where the philosopher, Solomon probably, talks about, yeah, we're all going to die. And it's true. But that's not the message you're supposed to get out of it per se. You're supposed to be thinking about death and preparing yourself for death. The purpose of Solomon was not to depress you so that you just fatalistically shoot yourself in the head and die. No, his purpose was to make you think about death and turn to righteousness, okay? Well, that doesn't seem to be what the demon's talking about. The demon says, we're all, we're all screwed, basically, is what he says. We're going to be all broken in pieces before morning. We're going to perish forever. All of our excellence goes away. We all die without wisdom. That's fatalism. That is not Christianity or Judaism or any doctrine we find in the Bible. So I do believe that this is a demonic visit that Eliphaz is recounting. So the Spirit tells uh, Eliphaz about this, that God doesn't trust angels. It's not entirely true. In fact, it's mostly false. But what I want to point out to you lastly of this passage is when he mentions that houses of clay are crushed like a moth and broken in pieces. These two words, crushed and broken in pieces, are Hebrew for getting crushed beneath rocks, pulverized. And what recent incident can you think about in history, in the Bible, about people who got pulverized? Job's children. Those two words are used for words for people who were crushed by rocks. So Eliphaz, or I should say the devil, is telling Eliphaz something to tell Job that will really make Job feel great, won't it? Let's talk about people who get crushed by rocks, Job. Okay, in other words, this is another reason that I believe Satan personally or through a minion talked to Eliphaz to help crush Job even, even further than he was already crushed because he starts talking about people dying like moths under rocks. That's pretty tactless, you know, <laughs> to bring up to somebody whose family just died that way. The Im implication is that Job's wicked children just got what they deserved. God punished them like you punish a moth. So let's go on now to chapter 5. Eliphaz has two chapters here, 4 and 5. 
So let's read verses 1 through 7. Call out now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. Then his sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. Notice that again. And there is no deliverer. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come up from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now verse 1 is interesting because Eliphaz seems to think that when Job was crying out earlier to try to call the Leviathan to help him. Now the only angels that people knew about so far that I know of are the cherubim who guarded the tree at the Garden of Eden. So I'm sure Adam and Eve talked about the cherubim that they saw there. And possibly the serpent. You know, they, they think that the serpent was an evil angel. So they know about the serpent who's also called Leviathan. And then Job, back in chapter 3, he said, I wish the magicians would call up the Leviathan, the great serpent. And so Eliphaz says, do you really think that the angels are going to listen to you? That's a, it's a consequence of Job's words. He spoke foolishly, and Eliphaz now thinks that Job is literally trying to call up the evil serpent. And he's right to rebuke Job for that. Job was being a moron when he asked for that. But now Eliphaz gets a lot harder with Job. He says, wrath kills a foolish man and envy too. And then he says, his sons are far from safety. They get crushed in the gate and there is no deliverer. So basically Eliphaz is saying, Job, you've shown your anger. So now we know you're a fool. And guess what happens to kids who are fools? They get crushed. In other words, maybe it wasn't your kids who were wicked and got crushed. Maybe it was your wickedness that got your sons crushed. How's that for helping a guy who's mourning the death of his kids? Yeah, it was all your fault, Job. <laughs> Face up to it. Not very nice. So now we're going to finish the chapter 5, verses 8 through 27. So this is a long passage, and we won't go uh, through every verse, but I want to read every verse to you. But as for me, I would seek God. And to God I would commit my case. He does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly. Those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He will deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. In war, from the power of the sword. You will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. You will not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine. You will not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. You will have a covenant with the stones of the field. And the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is at peace. You will visit your dwelling and find nothing wrong. You will also know that your descendants will be many. And your offspring like the grass of the earth. 
you will come to the grave at a ripe old age, like a sheaf of grain ripening in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true. Hear it and know it for yourself. So let's go through this a little bit, it's a lot simpler. Eliphaz has been bashing Job over the head with a verbal stick, and now he offers the carrot. You know, there's uh, ways of getting people to change. There's types of persuasion. And if you watch cop shows, there's good cop, bad cop. Uh, the bad cop threatens you and cajoles you and threatens to beat you to peace, beat you up. And then he leaves and the good cop comes in. You know, it, if, it'd be a lot easier if you just cooperated. And eventually this uh, back and forth, hopefully he'll get you to confess. Well, that's kind of what Eliphaz is doing here. He started with the bad cop. Job, your kids were wicked. They deserve to die. Well, no, maybe they weren't. Maybe it's your fault they died. But let's try to get through this together. And so now he switches and tries to be uh, nice. Verse 13 is interesting especially because Eliphaz says he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Now the reason that's interesting, it doesn't sound all that special, it's kind of a normal truism. The reason I bring it up though is because Paul quotes it in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 3.19, Paul quotes it exactly. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. So this is proof that the early church had the book of Job in their own canon, or at the very least it is proof that this part of Eliphaz's speech is true. Remember I told you that a lot of what Eliphaz is saying is wrong. Well, here's a part we know is true. He, God catches the crafty in their craftiness. Right? So uh, if nothing else, Eliphaz spoke some inspired words of God. Amazing. Even a wicked man can say something right occasionally. So even if Eliphaz is wrong most of the time, at least he's right occasionally. Uh, but it is nice to be quoted. But Eliphaz then makes all kinds of promises to Job, and they must seem cruel. If you just follow God, he'll make you rich again. He'll give you animals again. He'll give you another large family. Just repent and be righteous, and you will be rewarded, just like me and my other rich friends who are sitting here. So that's his promise to Job. And what could Job think of that? It's not true. I mean, it could be true. It's true for them. Of course, you have to ask, are they actually righteous? Is that why God's rewarding them? Or is God rewarding these three guys, not because they're righteous, because, but because they're wicked, and that is a judgment on them. By being rich, they never have the impetus to turn to God. That's an open question. But what Job knows is that he was righteous, and yet he was destroyed. So Eliphaz is ignorant of the truth. Job was already righteous, and he got destroyed anyway. And in fact, Eliphaz is unknowingly trying to make Job into the figure Satan claimed that he was. You remember what Satan said to God? The only reason anyone on earth loves you is because you reward them. They only love you because you give them cookies. If you quit giving them cookies, nobody would care anything about you. That's exactly what Satan says is people's motivation. And here's Eliphaz saying, Job, just love God and you'll be rich like me. Who does that sound like? Joel Osteen? Some of these health and wealth preachers, all you got to do is name it and claim it. God loves to make you rich. It's a lie. But Eliphaz believes it. That's the health and prosperity gospel. So Eliphaz shows us that this is his view. And that's one of the reasons Satan was so, um, what do you want to say? So bold before God to say such a thing. Because there are examples of people who think that they're righteous before God and that that's why they're rich and powerful. So, if Satan had knocked Eliphaz off of his home and off of his kids and gave him leprosy, guess what he would have done? He would have cursed God and died because he's got God in a box. 
I'm righteous, so God rewards me. Suddenly, if God stops rewarding me, I'm not righteous, he's going to hate God. Because the only reason he ever loved God is because of all the cookies he got. Well, John Chrysostom, he was a famous preacher in the 2nd or 3rd century AD, he commented on Eliphaz with this truth. The person charged with the task of consoling requires as much skill as a surgeon who lances sores. In other words, you know how important it is if, if you've got surgery that needs to be done. You want to find a specialist who's good at it. You don't want to find someone who's just coming out of med school and's never cut open anything but a pig. You know, you want a, a good doctor. Well, Chrysostom is saying you need a good doctor to help people in comfort and consolation. And obviously what you have here with Eliphaz is not a helpful person. You should not go try to comfort people if you're terrible at it. I mean, maybe you need some practice, but don't take the lead. Eliphaz obviously doesn't know how to do this. Of course, we're going to discover that his other friends are even worse. So Eliphaz is the best of the worst, you could say. But Eliphaz is not a good comforter. He, tastes, he tells Job that he's a secret, wicked man, and he got his whole family killed because of his own envy. So today we've covered uh, two whole chapters. Next week, we're going to look at Job's response to Eliphaz's rebuke. Uh, usually at this point, I would ask if there are any questions, but there's no one else here. <laughs> so uh, we're going to... We do have an online... There was a bulletin sent to you by our elder, Mike Bibby. And, uh, oh, I've got it printed here. But I believe what you're supposed to do, if you're watching from home, is go online and find some music and sing along. Is that right? Yes. Yes, so go on there and do some singing. We're going to come back at the normal time at 11 o'clock for the worship service. And uh, it'll be a little different because we won't be doing hymns, but we'll do some extra prayers and things of that nature. So we'll be signing off here and come back and see you in a little while. Thank <laughs> you.